This is Writer's Voice, and I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Later today, we unearth a real treasure from our archives, my 2008 interview with a black American author who was just then starting to make his mark, ta Coates. We spoke with him then about his just-released first book, The Beautiful Struggle Between the World and Me. But first, we speak with Chetna Maru about her debut book, a novel, Western Lane. It's a beautifully written coming-of-age story about a young girl and her British Indian family who are trying to come to terms with the recent death of the family matriarch. Gopi and her father, Pa, bond on the squash court, where she discovers her love of the game and her own strength and capacity for renewal. Western Lane is a novel about sisterhood and recovery from loss, told in Maru's deeply evocative prose. Chetna Maru's stories have appeared in anthologies and literary magazines. She won the 2022 Plimpton Prize for Fiction. Chetna Maru, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you, Francesca. This novel is about a British Indian family who live uh, near London. It's a father and three daughters who have just lost their wife and mother. Tell us about the characters. There's Gopi, who's the narrator, her sisters Kush, and then Mona, the eldest. And, of course, there's Pa, their father. So tell us about them. Yeah, so the family, as you said, they've lost their, um, the girls have lost their mother. So the whole family are going through contending with their grief. At the same time, the sisters are contending with growing up. So when we meet the sisters, Gopi is 11. The middle sister, Kush, is 13, and Mona is 15. Gofi is the youngest. She's the one telling the story, looking back at this time in her childhood. And when we meet her, she is sort of initially in the shadows, in the family, watching events. You know, she's shy to the extent that she blushes when she is singled out. Um, she's very close to her her sister's. She mirrors her sister Kush. You know, if Kush goes out into the balcony, Gopi follows her. Um, if Kush lies or sits in a particular way, then Gopi will do the same. And we sort of sense in her as kind of a deep need for connection in a way and an openness. Kush, who is the middle sister, is in a way the storyteller of the family. She's the one who, when things happen, she's the one that tries to make sense of them and tell the story of what has happened and so in, in a way sets the memory of of events she thinks and feels very deeply in her grief she goes very quiet Mona who's the eldest she's 15 um, she is very concerned with appearances and duty and conforming to the expectations that, that people have for the family so people in the extended community have for the family She's also quite practical, um, she's concerned with the physical well-being of the family. And then Pa, Pa is a quiet man. And you know, when his wife dies, he is bereft. He is not able to articulate his grief um, or even to communicate with the daughters at all at first. This novel is uh, written from the first-person perspective of Gopi. 
Why did you choose her as the narrator? She was always the one, the youngest, who was telling the story right from the beginning. So there was, it was almost not a choice. It was just always her. And her voice seemed right. And so I just stayed with her. And it's a remarkable voice as well, because she notices things. She's extraordinarily tuned into the nuance and the subtleness and detail of not only her feelings, but those of the people around her. I mean, she's, she's extraordinarily aware. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think, yeah, as the youngest, Gopi is is the most dependent. And um, as I said, she's got this really strong need for connection. And I think sometimes that need for connection can create this kind of profound perspective that the child has inside the family. And I think that's that's the case for Gopi. That's where her kind of awareness of you know, what is happening of, of the other people in the family. And I think she sometimes she feels... She understands it without quite understanding it, or she knows it without understanding, or she understands without knowing what's happening, and she just sort of feels it in her body. Yeah, and it struck me, it allowed you to write this in a way that was extremely faithful to the maxim, show, don't tell. And I think that that's one of the reasons I, I so thoroughly enjoyed reading this book, because it immersed me really in what was going on in the story. Can you talk a little bit about your process of writing it? Um, yeah, so I guess we haven't sort of talked about the fact that the part of the story is that, that Gopi is driven to become an athlete by her father. And where the story started for me was the feeling of being inside a squash court with a voice saying, there were three of us. I knew it was three sisters inside the squash court. I knew there was a father on the balcony above them instructing them. And I knew they all felt the presence of an absent mother. And so from the beginning, I had the sort of emotional and spatial world of the story. Um, so it sort of started with that kind of feeling and voice. I actually wrote it initially as a short story and then almost a year later, um, I showed it to a friend who was sort of a mentor to me with my writing. And he said, do you actually have a novel on your hands here? And I just kind of put it aside for another six months. And I think in that time, I was not consciously thinking about Gopi and the family. But I think unconsciously, I must have been kind of just figuring it out while I was working on other things. And then I came back to the story and I think probably wrote it in about a year, a year and a half. I, in terms of the process or how it feel like I was following Gopi's voice and at times trying to inhabit her body, um, so the child body. So there's this kind of, when I was deep inside a scene, sometimes it was like this feeling of trying to get into her body. And then sometimes it was just this voice that was somehow kind of to the left and to, to the back of my head, sort of, um, especially, I guess. That's really wonderful. And it really does show in the writing. And as you said, um, the book really does center on 
Well, it centers on this younger daughter, on Gopi, and the western lane of the title refers to the squash courts that her father takes her to. Um, he starts out by taking all three sisters as, I, I, I guess, a kind of way to to do something that he feels comfortable with doing in the midst of not feeling comfortable at all and parenting all of a sudden by himself three three daughters is that right yeah yeah so he he doesn't know what to do with them and he doesn't know how to communicate with them um i feel he's trying to give them something um by taking them to the squash corp um and kind of teaching them but yeah and, and i guess it's there that he he does begin to talk to them but always about the game um this kind of teaching them how to strike the ball, how to um, move, how to move the opponent, how to control the court. I mean, I could say something about my own experience playing squash, which may give a sort of an idea of, in a way, what the father is giving them as well. So I would say I'm not a competitive person. And as a child, I was extremely uncoordinated. I didn't do sports. Um, I didn't play squash. I didn't play squash until my late teens and only properly years later. But I always liked the squash court. And for a time, it was like this place where I felt physically coordinated and at ease. And I took lessons and my coach taught me to think of the space of the court as something alive and to move the opponent, not the ball. And in the game, you're sometimes taught to hold the tee, which is the centre of the court, as you and your opponent kind of move around one another for the fight for space. And as she grieves the loss of her mother and her father instructs her from the balcony, I found myself lending Gopi this awareness of space and of the other players in the court and her place in relation to them. And this ability to kind of move in sync or deliberately out of sync with them. And I think that is part of what the what, what Pa is giving to to the girls. This is Writer's Voice, and I'm talking with British writer Chetna Maru about her debut novel, Western Lane. It's a beautifully written coming-of-age story about a young girl and her British Indian family who are trying to come to terms with the recent death of the family matriarch. Yeah, and that's, that's remarkable, actually, that you say that, because it, what it becomes is a means for which, um, well, Gopi especially, because the other girls stop going. You know, they're not that interested in the game, but she's got a real talent. And so you see this whole development you know, it's, it's a coming-of-age story, but it's it's a much deeper development uh, that she gains of awareness of herself and her own feelings and her own needs. Instead, I mean, she needs connection, but she gets a greater sense of who she is. And it also, her father gets a greater understanding of who she is so that there are points in, in the in the novel where there's a conflict between traditional expectations of girls, right, in, in her culture and what she's doing, how she's stepping out of those expected mores. So I wonder if you could talk about that tension between those two and how both Gopi and her father negotiate that. 
Yeah, I think there is quite a lot in the book about the sort of people's kind of stepping over boundaries, whether it's, um, like you say, what's what are the social mores, what's expected of a girl, but also the the people that, that Gopi and her father are kind of interacting with and making friends with. And in terms of the the squash court, it's a place where Pa and Gopi are able to sort of forget the outside world is this kind of strained white box where time is suspended and yeah and I think that Pa kind of recognizes that Gopi is a talented player and also very committed and has this kind of the stamina for the game I think he I think Pa is surprised you know when there is a moment where you quite early on where Gopi sort of notices the expression on her father's face. So there is a moment quite early on where Gopi begins to play on the squash court. Um, she's doing a drill and she sort of gets into this kind of energized state where she is playing and she's playing really well and her father notices. And so there is this moment of recognition that that Gopi is actually going to be good at this game. And he he goes with it. He continues to teach her. I think there is no kind of sense on his side that, well, she's a girl. Um, she's not going to do well at this. He he wants to push her. But the this question of should she be playing, given that she is a girl, comes more from from the outside, from the extended family. From her aunt. Yes. Ranjan, that's right. Her aunt and, and not so much the uncle. I think he, he, he comes to accept it. Yeah, and this is also part of the tension. I mean, one gets a sense that Ranjan is trying to step in for the mother who has died and is trying to do what she thinks her sister would have wanted. Um, and she actually asked the father to give her one of the girls. Um, why does she do that? And and is that kind of an expected thing to happen in, in these families? So it's not unusual for a a child in a in a family to be either nursed or raised by an aunt or um a, a cousin or another member of the family. Um you know I've seen it amongst sort of the, the generation above mine and even my own generation sort of questions over would a particular child go to live with their aunt and in this scenario I think that she you know as she puts it a difficult time is coming for Pa having lost his wife and having the three girls to look at and she says three is too many so from from her point of view she believes that she is helping Pa but also she and uh, her husband, um, the girl's uncle Bhavan, haven't been able to have a child and would like to have a child. So they see it as you know, this This is a solution to help the family. There's a, there's a scene in the novel where Gopi's just gotten a new racket from her sister Mona, who has been working and saved up money to give her a racket. And it's not exactly the traditional racket that the father would have used. It's not wood. It's aluminum, I guess. 
he says to her, it's very nice you did well, but then you write this. He said this, but with his eyes and his body, his shoulders, his throat, the white bones visible under his skin, he was telling us that in one day we had exposed him, left him behind, left him wide open to whatever was coming for him. Could you explain that? So so the girls have gone to London to buy this racket and using Mona's money, which Mona has earned by taking a job um she's only 15 and so there is the sense that until now the girls have needed him um and though he hasn't known you know what to do with the girls um at the beginning he now sort of feels that they have almost stepped beyond the boundary of you know, being the children and are growing up and I think he senses that he can be left, that they no longer need him. Well, it is just really a beautiful novel. Uh, I, does this come somewhat out of your own experience or is it just out of whole cloth, created out of whole cloth? I suspect everything I write comes to an extent from me, but not necessarily from uh, a particular experience. So I, I wouldn't say whole cloth because I've obviously set it in a in a, in the 1980s in Britain in a community that I know, a large family. There's a squash court, so there are a lot of things in there that are things that I kind of recognise. But the story itself it just came from that initial feeling and voice and my kind of following it. And you said it took you over a year to write, uh, and this was after you'd already written a short story, and it's a, it's a short novel, but I got the sense, and, and I wanted to ask you this, I wondered if you did a lot of pairing during that year and a half. I think the novel was always going to be a short novel. Um, where I did pairing was more where I had I think I made I'm not sure it was a mistake but I wrote an outline um, a vague outline and, and started to follow it and at a certain point I realized the life had gone out of the story and so I think I effectively cut everything that I'd written based on the outline and um, which was about maybe probably a third of what is currently the novel and maybe six months work so and then I just went back to the point where it still felt it was alive so cutting that was the main bit of actual kind of cutting big chunks that I did otherwise it was kind of editing as I went along and you know I love and really wish I was one of those writers who could write the whole thing really fast and then edit because I really love the editing process and I you know, sometimes love but mostly hate the actual just the drafting the initial drafting process but because I'm kind of going quite slowly and I you know every time I sit down I'm almost reading everything that I've written so far and editing that a little bit and then keep going a little you know another you know, three pages or five pages or one page or whatever um, so I'm kind of editing as I go so I have done a lot of editing but it's not necessarily cutting big chunks does that make sense 
Yeah, absolutely. It it does. And and I totally uh, relate to that process. And it is a beautiful novel, Western Lane, uh, Chetna Maru. It's just been great to talk with you about it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Francesca. Thank you so much. Chetna Maru. Her novel, Western Lane, is published by Macmillan. Next up, Tanahasi Coates. Stay tuned after the break. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Rhiannon. Black History Month always prompts me to rummage around in my archives for good material to re-air. That's because I don't confine my interviews about black history to just one month out of the year. This time, I went way back to 2008 to a terrific interview Ta-Nehisi Coates gave me after he'd just published his first book, The Beautiful Struggle. In the intervening years, he's gone on to become one of the most celebrated contemporary figures for his writings on race in America. When the crack epidemic hit Baltimore in the 1980s, it sucked the life out of what had once been thriving, intact African-American communities. Tanahasi Coates grew up with his father, mother, siblings, and half-siblings in one of those communities, northwest Baltimore, during the crack meltdown. Young black boys like Coates were faced with challenges that sent many of them over the cliff, taken down by drugs, violence, and despair. Tanahasi Coates and his older brother Bill were coming of age in the middle of the chaos, but their father, a Black Panther Party member and then a librarian for Howard University, was not about to stand by and let his boys suffer the same fate. He cajoled, corrected, and coaxed his sons along the perilous path to manhood, They ultimately made it, but not without a struggle. Coates' powerful and lyrical memoir, The Beautiful Struggle, tells the story. I lived in Baltimore for seven years, but the city Coates describes is like another country, as he himself writes. I actually lived in Baltimore for seven years. Get out of here, Doran. What what, what years were you there? I was there from 1972 to 1979. Okay, all right. right. And uh, so it was before you were born, I believe. Yes, but the the sort of things I'm talking about in the book must have begun about that time. Probably they did. And I lived, I have to say, I lived in a community around the Inner Harbor that was a white working class community at the time. It was Mm -hmm. before the gentrification. Right, right. And it was one of the most segregated cities I, I think I've ever lived in. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It, it is pretty incredible. I always tell people, you know, I um, I didn't, you know, have a white person in my class until I was in high school and I was going to a magnet school. Um, I didn't even have any white friends until I was in my 20s, you know, because, uh, yeah, you know, and then, you know, after I left Baltimore, I went to D.C., you know, which is also <laughs> equally segregated. So, and that's one of the things, you know, coming up here to New York, you know, it really just exposed a whole new world to me. Yeah, very, very true. Well, Ta-Nehisi Coates, welcome to Writer's Voice. Oh, thank you for having me. You grew up in West Baltimore in the 1980s, and you write early in your book, The Beautiful Struggle, that you were in an other country than the rest of America. So put us there. Tell us what West Baltimore was like back then. Well, the thing is, I mean, even though I did say that, what I wanted people to know, you know, uh, was that uh, it, it was, this is America, too. Um, it's just in America that people don't think about. It's a place in which, uh, and I think this is so true, even today for a significant portion of young black youth, 
with the most ordinary things, you know, walking around the corner uh, to get the paper, you know, trying to go see your girlfriend, trying to get to school. The specter of violence hangs over all of the smallest daily things. And just how that alters your perception of the world, how it changes you and makes you into something that's uh, completely different than what people normally think about when they think about American childhood. Yes, and you explore that quite beautifully, lyrically, even, in your book. Uh, tell us more about what did it look like? What did, what did the neighborhood you lived in look like when you grew up? Well, first of all, I want to correct something that's sort of getting out there that I've seen in a couple of reviews, and that is that I grew up poor. I certainly did not grow up poor. Um, I went to school with a lot of kids who did grow up poor, uh, and I, I know the difference. I, you know, never worried about uh, the clothes on my back, the food, you know, having food to eat or anything like that. You know, most of the book takes place during a period in which I'm living in a uh, community across the street from uh, Baltimore's famous or infamous Mundon Mall. Um, I lived in a brick row house uh, with my mother and with my father. My father had seven kids by four women, so I had six other brothers and sisters. And, you know, during different periods, I lived with different brothers and sisters. Uh, they were always there, you know, visiting and everything. It was a really, really big family. Uh, during the period of discovered, uh my older brother, Big Bill, who's a character in the book, is living with me, and my younger brother, uh, Mental League, is also living with me. So it's us three, my two parents, and, and occasionally, I, you know, my sister's home from college or, or wherever. I think the thing about being black, though, is that despite not being poor, it's very tough to be African-American and live in an African-American community and not have some sort of acquaintance with poverty, you know, and not have some sort of uh, familiarity with the things that, you know, uh, sort of infect the quote-unquote underclass. Uh, and I, what I mean to say by that is not, you know, so much the stuff seeps over, but you, you're going to, you know, you're going to go to school with people who are poor. You're going to have friends who are poor. You may have cousins who are poor. I mean, just as, a, as an example, you know, as I say, I, I grew up, you know, pretty well provided for. Uh, my old, my two oldest sisters, and I always find this interesting, my two oldest sisters and Big Bill spent their early life in the projects with, you know, my father and their mother. You know, so these things sort of shift and, you know, and change, but we have so much proximity. Uh, uh, to those sorts of issues. And I think that's another thing that's different. Well, you had a really unusual family in many ways. I mean, not maybe just that they were, or that your father and your mother were um, were not as poor as the folks around them. They had jobs, and they also took education very seriously, which we'll, we'll talk about. But but first, a little bit more. You You say in the book that when... Now, I knew Baltimore before the crack epidemic. Um, when I was there, uh, even though it was a segre- very segregated, I lived in a segregated community, I, I taught at, at uh, Baltimore Community College, and I had students who, who worked at, at, at um, uh, Bethlehem Steel and African-American workers as well as white workers. They made a good living. Mm-hmm. Um, you say when crack hit Baltimore, civilization fell. Indeed. So give us the before and after. Well, and you have to remember, I was probably about 10 or 11 when crack hit. So my memory of the before is not so much a memory as it is a sensibility. And it's also melded with the whole idea of just getting older and things changing, you know, and, and uh, the sort of chaos that comes about from just becoming an adolescent. But, you know, my you know, recollection to the extent that I have one, and, you know, the recollection of folks that I interviewed for the book is that they were just laws. I mean, it was much more stable. You could go to the skating rink, and, and you could go bowling, and you could do things like this, and you didn't hear about people getting shot. I mean, sort of, I mean, there was always violence, but 
Well, crack bart was a sort of catastrophic violence. Not, you know, I got beat up, but I got killed. You know what I mean? Because I, I stepped on somebody's uh, suede pumas, as I said, I said, you know, I said in the book, you know, uh, <laughs> a misstep on somebody's suede pumas and the jihad begins. I mean, it was the sort of catastrophic violence that, that crack bart that was just shocking. It just completely altered uh, uh, the dynamic in, in Baltimore and I think in, in, in cities around the country. What did you say? A misstep on somebody's what? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's a line in the book. A misstep on to Sway Puma. Sway, you know, there are all these sort of <laughs> little intricate phrases uh, in the book that come from the era. Um, and Sway Pumas were uh, a shoe, you know, just normal Puma tennis shoes. And they, were, uh, they had a line that were completely made out of suede. And they were very popular at the time. And if you stepped on, like the big thing back then, people would get shot for stepping on somebody's shoes. It was seen as, you know, great disrespect. Uh, for whatever reason, and because they were swayed, if you stepped on somebody's shoes, they could be the footprint was easily seen. And so there would be all these stories about people stepping on somebody else's suede pumas by mistake, and somebody shooting some someone else. And I think you know a, a huge part of that is that these people, you know, you're young and you're a boy, and you're going through all of the sort of you know hormonal and you know just sociological thing that boys go through about aggression and that sort of thing, and suddenly you have access to guns. You know, you have access to guns. You may not have the sort of family background to stabilize you and to steer you through that, and then suddenly there's a gun right there. And I think, you know, that, that just breeds trouble. It just breeds, breeds complete trouble. Now, you mentioned respect. There's a part in your book uh, where you say, we know what we are, that we walk like we're not long for this world, that this world has never longed for us. Yes. We are the walking lowest rung, and all that stands between us and the local zoo is respect. Yeah. Say more about that. Well, I, I was trying to get across that. It's this idea, and there's a, a, a much more profane passage that follows that, that goes before that. And what, what I was trying to say is, you know, on the news, you know, whenever you hear about, you know, people talking about black youth and these sort of respect killings and, you know, somebody got shot over respect, People look at these folks like, like they're crazy. They say, oh, I, you know, this is insane. This is absolutely insane. In fact, respect is what people lean on when they have nothing else. It's, it's just true of, of, of everyone. It's, you know, down south, you know, sir, you have offended my honor. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, when you have nothing else, all you feel that, that, that is between you and just a complete animal is respect. You know what I mean? You're going to give me. Now, I'm not defending that, obviously. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I have a young seven year old son. I certainly would not advise him go shoot somebody because he was disrespected. But the point I'm trying to make in that is that this idea of, of, of respect being a huge thing, I think it comes when people's backs are against the wall and they have nothing else. I mean, just as an aside, I've, I've noted, you know, as this campaign sort of draws to a close, uh, a lot of the talk about Hillary has been, you know, Obama needs to make sure he respects Hillary. She should, you know, he should allow her to exit in a respectful fashion because there really is nothing else. If you're not going to win... There's only respect. You know, the 1 in 15 football team plays for, I guess the 1 in 14 football team plays for respect because they have nothing else. Uh, and it's, it's very similar with black youth. I mean, if you feel like you have nothing else to live for, that, you know, that, that's all you got when your back is to the wall. And we're speaking with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi, sorry. Oh, there again. Let me that see. is okay. And, and yet it's spelled I. It is. It is. I know. I know. That's why it's okay. I understand completely. Okay. And we're speaking with Ta-Nehisi Coates about his memoir, The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and an Unlikely Road to Manhood. So now let's talk about your father, about your dad. He was a really unusual man, um, a member of the Black Panther Party. Mm -hmm. Yes, he was. 
and an intellectual. Uh, talk about the forces that made him who he was. Well, my dad was a very smart child. He was an extremely intelligent child, learned to read at a very early age. Uh, and he was raised in an environment in which it's not so much that intelligence wasn't, intelligence wasn't prized, but the uh, social infrastructure was not there for people to know, I think, what to do with intelligent children. For instance, he talks in the book about how he had no concept that he could one day go on to college, like that that was what smart kids actually did. But he was a smart kid, grew up, you know, in extreme, extreme poverty in uh, north and west Philadelphia, um, and went on uh, to, uh, to, to uh, enter the Army, uh, became, you know, went, 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 to the, went off to the Vietnam War, uh, mostly because there really wasn't anything else. Again, I mean, college wasn't really something that he, you know, saw as a prospect for himself, got radicalized in the Army, uh, came out, uh, uh, was a member of the Black Panther Party uh, for, for some period of time, uh, became disillusioned with that at a point where a lot of people became disillusioned with it. And, you know, went back to something that he had always loved as a child and continued to love all his life, and that, and that was books. Um, he, was, uh, he owned a bookstore for a little while. He eventually moved uh, into publishing uh, books, uh, uh, reprints, and moved into republishing books that were out of print, buying about African Americans. Uh, and that really is his business, even, even to this day. Um, my dad loved and loves books. Um, and so that, that was just a huge influence on me. It was, the, you know, one of the first sort of initial, how shall I say, it, it um, primed me to be a lover of words. Um, I, I got that from him very much. And he named you this very unusual name, Tanahasi. Yes, uh, it tell, tell us what that's about. Uh, Tanahasi is a uh, geographical reference to ancient Egyptian for um, the, 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 the Nubians who lived to the south of Egypt. And uh, my dad was just particularly struck by that name. Um, and he, he just loved it, and he gave it to me. And the Nubians were the, the black Egyptians. Yes, 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 yes. Or not quite, I guess not. Egyptians at certain points when they moved into Egypt, but literally, uh, uh, you know, a kingdom in and of their own right. And, and yet he also, he gave you his love of books, and he was a tough taskmaster. Tell us about that, and, and why was he like that? Well, my dad had uh, five sons and two daughters. And, you know, fathers worry about their daughters, I think. But, you know, and my dad worried about his daughters. You know, and I know there's this sort of trope of, you know, the father toting the shotgun, you know, to keep boys away from his daughters. But I think my dad really, really worried about his sons. Um, because, again, the period in which we were coming up in was a period of great catastrophic violence. The, ca- the, the catastrophe for women in that period was uh, a teen pregnancy. Um, but, you know, teen pregnancy, you know, as bad as it was, I'm not trying to do, do in any way diminish teen pregnancy as a problem, but, you know, maybe you could go back to school still. You know, uh, you know it, it, it was going to cripple you, but maybe you could get a job. There were, you know, different things that you could do. The things that were happening to black boys were just fine. I mean, you go off to jail, and that is like a completely, you know, it just alters everything. You're going to have trouble getting employed when you get out. You're going to have trouble uh, going back to school, uh, getting financial aid. Or you might just get shot. You know what I mean? Like you might literally end up dead. So I think those sorts of fears just pushed my father. I mean, it really, really pushed him to make sure he was really on the ball uh, when it came to his kids. Um, and so in some ways, strict is the wrong word to describe my father because uh, in many ways I, you know we were quite liberated i was allowed to hang out with whoever i wanted to i didn't have any sort of curfew for you know uh when i i i could talk on the phone my father never policed what i read or what i listened to um but 
what he did do was uh, he uh, made his force felt on things that he felt he should. So, for instance, we didn't celebrate any holidays. Uh, and so, you know, for quote-unquote conscious black people coming up during that period of time, the idea was that, oh, if you don't celebrate Christmas, you don't celebrate Kwanzaa. But we didn't even celebrate Kwanzaa. <laughs> and, and why was that? Uh, because my dad didn't see it as any more legitimate. He saw it just as a fake Christmas for people who, you know, couldn't deal with the fact that they weren't celebrating Christmas. <laughs> so were you were you not celebrating holidays because they were, uh, you know, examples of the dominant culture, or was it because holidays themselves were suspect? Uh, no, um, because we definitely, you know, uh, talked on, you know, uh, Malcolm X's birthday, you know, so it wasn't so much that. Uh, it was more that at their root, I mean, so you take Christmas, for example, and I go through this today because I have a young seven-year-old son, and I did not enjoy not celebrating Christmas. And so, you know, me and my, my spouse, we celebrate Christmas, but I, I, I swear I constantly go through this. I, I think what my dad uh, was most annoyed, well, first of all, he wasn't a Christian, but even beyond that, the rank commercialism of it, I mean, just completely, you know, uh, put him off. I mean, Thanksgiving, this sort of... You know, it's roots, you know, given, you know, the relationship of this country with Native Americans. And even beyond that, just the, the complete gorging of oneself, you know, like calling that a holiday. I mean, I think, you know, it just didn't start, start contrast to his values. Um, and so he, uh, you know, he, he rejected it. He rejected it. So he was part of a, a, he was really part of the counterculture. And part of that counterculture was also the... Black Power Movement, the the Black Panthers, uh, and and yet it was something. I mean, he was part of the '60s generation. He was, except he was a counterculture within the counterculture. You know, like because, like I said, I mean, for people like him, the, the standard thing was I don't celebrate. At least for Black, I don't celebrate Christmas. I celebrate Kwanzaa. And he was like, no, nah, I don't do that either. <laughs> you know, so even you know, he was not even a doctrinaire counterculture person. I mean, one of the reasons why you know he was in the Panther Party and ended up leaving. You know, because he didn't like what he saw. It wasn't so much that he, like, became a conservative or something like that. I mean, he still believed what he believed. But, you know, my dad is, 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 is an, uh, what's the word, an, an iconoclast, you know. Um, and so he pulls from a lot of different places, loves to debate, loves to, you know, argue and go back and forth, is always turning things over in his head. Uh, and so even as, you know, certainly as part of the counterculture, he, you know, there was nothing doctrinaire about him at all. You know, he just didn't, he didn't believe. More than anything, he trusted free thinking. He's always trusted free thinking. I mean, me and him, we, we debate about the stuff I write, you know, to, to this day. We debated about the style in which the book was written, you know, and whether that was, the, you know, the best way to proceed. And so I think what he wants, you know, what he wanted for us, more than that we agree with him, was that, you know, we be thinking individuals. You know, that, that I think was his highest aspiration for us. And how was that for you? Now, I, you also had a, a family in which there was not just free thinking, but a certain amount of free loving, as you say. <laughs> he had, uh, you know, seven kids by four different women. Yes. How was that aspect of his iconoclasm for you in growing up? Mm, see, it didn't really strike me that way because uh, most of that, A, happened before I was born. Um, so, like, I wasn't around. Like, I didn't, I knew it, but... You know, again, I'm coming of age in a community in which I would say the majority of my friends don't have fathers at all. So it wasn't like, you know, next door was the Waltons. You know, I mean, next door were people living with their grandmother, living with an aunt, 
you know, father comes around every three years or something like that. So, you know, I mean, from my perspective, I thought, you know, what we were doing was, you know, probably healthier than most of what I, I, I was seeing in, 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 in the community. Um, and yet he did have a girlfriend live with you and your mother. Oh, she did not live with us. Oh, that's right. You did that's not live right. with us. But, yes, you do. Now you're giving away the book. That's the only reason uh, why I wasn't oh, saying that. Oh, okay. we don't have you to do give, that. No, you can do it. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's totally, I'm willing to. But, yeah, he did. He did. And, that, and that, that's, uh, you know, a point of, of tension in the book. Um, but even that, you know, uh, I was raised in such a way that it was like my dad is my dad. He's not my husband. Uh, my mom is my mom. She's not my wife. So, you know, whatever relationship they have between each other, whatever issues they have between each other, you know, like that's not my issue. You know, my issue is dealing with them, you know, as parents. Um, and that was how I always uh, uh, carried it. That was how I always thought about it. Um, and, and there was a lot of love, too. I mean, it, it sounds like you had you had some of the advantages of having multiple adults and uh half siblings around i did i did i did I, I i constantly um and i think again if this is something that one thing that black kids don't get enough of and probably kids in general you know that it takes a village thing as corny as it sounds it's just true it's just true i mean the more responsible positive adults you can surround your child with who can you know impute expectations on your child you know, you know, tell him or her that, you know, you're expected to, you know, go out in the world and do beautiful things. That is a great thing for children to hear. And I had that. I had that from everywhere. It just came from all sorts of sources. I'm speaking with Ta-Nehisi Coates about his memoir, The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and an Unlikely Road to Manhood. Now, your dad became a, a librarian at Howard University where your older brother and sister also went to school there. And there, your parents' expectations of you were, were quite high academically. As you say, you you got your love of words there, and you're a journalist now. But you had a kind of rocky, ambivalent relationship to school. Yeah, always had, always have, probably always will have. Um, no, I, was, I wasn't very good at school. I was, I was pretty smart. Um, but I, you know, when it came down to sitting in a seat and listening to somebody for 40 minutes, and I just, what I, my mind wasn't there. I was too easily distracted, still am too easily distracted. Um, and I just, I did, I performed quite poorly. <laughs> Somehow, you know, you know, uh, my parents dragged me, you know, uh, across the finish line in the college. But, um, no, I, I've always performed quite poorly in school. Do you have the book there? Uh, in what? In, in terms of why I performed uh, poorly in school? No, in terms of uh, reading a, a little section. Oh, do I have a book here? You have um, a copy of your book. Do I have a I'm sure I have it somewhere. Um, can you hold on one second? Yeah. This is really bad, but I can't find one. Oh, you can't. Okay. Oh, no, here's one. Here's one right here. Oh, good. Okay, what did you want me to read? Yeah, and it was uh, it was about this. I found this actually quite moving, um, this this section. And um, I'm going to have to bleep out one of the words, but, but it's okay. You can go ahead and say it, and I'll just bleep it out later. Mm-hmm. Um, on page 169, you talk about kind of there's a sense of, of the adults around you who are 
watching you and worrying about your your academic achievement here. You say they watch they knew that you were smart. They watched me absorb books about my about my own and further about foreign places and geographies. And yet, whenever someone threatened to put a grade on it, you say, I fell asleep and lost interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'd like you to read the next paragraph, and it it goes um, from the bottom of 169 to the top of of 170. And in this, uh, you're talking about your older brother as well as yourself. And that's uh, Big Bill starts with, in this Big Bill and I were one. Okay. All right. You ready? Yeah. In this, Big Bill and I were one. Our folks understood that there was a war upon us and that school was a weapon that outdid, outdid any Glock. Yet the whole process, with its equally spaced desks, precisely timed periods and lectures, with its standardized pencils and tests, felt unnatural to me. But much as I hated their terms, having been impressed into them, <clears throat> I hated more the failing. So I was left with a great unconscious sadness and emptiness, which even when I was alone, I was not fully aware. But it worked on me like an invisible weight, altered my laughter, posture, my approach to girls. Forget what you have heard or what you have, what you have seen in your son. He may lie about homework and laugh when the teacher calls home. He may curse his teacher, propose arson for the whole public school system. But inside is the same sense that was in me. None of us ever want to fail. None of us ever want to be unworthy to not measure up. Yeah, that that weight, that unconscious sadness. I wonder if that's something, you know, that not only you experienced, but that you also saw not not only in you and your big brother Bill, but also in the boys around you. The you know many of you know. There's been a big debate, I, I think, in in the African American community, and that you know certainly been witnessed by um, you know the rest of America around you know do. Do African-American kids care about school? Yeah, I think that's poppycock. And, um, you know, I think if you're a smart kid, right, and you're you're a young black kid and you're smart, um, you get teased. You get teased. Like all smart kids get teased, especially if you're smart and socially awkward. You know, smart, socially awkward, which sometimes, you know, goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. Uh, You get teased. You get teased. And And I got teased. But... Like, that's sort of based on this uh, mythical parallel world wherein white, smart, socially awkward kids are like class president and captain of the football team. Um, in the real world, you know, smart, socially awkward kids get teased. I just, I, I didn't know anybody who, if you talked to them and they were like, you know, are you happy you failed? They would say yes. I mean, I just, I don't, I don't, you know, people make decisions for all sorts of reasons. Wanting to fail, though, it just, I mean, that sounds, it's just sort of, you know, we get to say things about black kids, because usually there are no black kids around to talk for themselves, um, or to be, you know, interviewed that, you know, are just completely ludicrous. And that was one of the things I wanted to do in this book. You know, no one, you know what I mean, black kids don't, you know, want to fail. <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, schools should be made any easier for them. But if you begin with the presumption that they, you know, don't care about school, then, you know, there's really nothing else to talk about. You know, so it's just a way of shutting down the conversation. I mean, what else can you say? I mean, you know, because all that, you know, if you say, well, black boys don't care about school, that's why this is happening the way it is. Well, I mean, then, you know, what else is there? It's on them then. You know, um, and I just, I find it preposterous to look at children, you know, and to draw those sorts of, you know, conclusions. It's deeply 
dehumanizing and flattening uh, and just sort of reflects, I think, a general frustration that adults may feel. But, you know, one of the things that I'm clear on is I remember being a kid, um, and I remember, you know, what I did, and I remember my motivations. Uh, and so <clears throat> I've decided that I'm going to carry that with me throughout my life uh, when, when I decide to talk about children and when I'm speaking about how children are. I'm going to remember how I was as a child. Um, and I know that I didn't like this. I did bad at school, and I failed quite a bit. But I didn't, you know, you could not say that I didn't care. I mean, it was the only thing I really had to draw my self-esteem from. Um, and so it actually did great injury <laughs> to do bad at school. Um, so I, I just, I, I hate that whole line of thinking. So is there something there then about the difference in expectations? That is that the society in some way expects black kids to fail and then they do. Um, I think most black, not most, I think a significant number of black kids, um, well, so first of all, I think most black kids, you know, if you just go across the board, have less access to wealth. So you begin there. Um, and so parents are much more harried and are thinking about other things. Okay, so you start there. Second, most black kids, or I'm sorry, again, you saying most. I'm falling into that trap of most. A significant yeah, and, and me too. I did too. So yeah, I'm gonna correct yeah, that. Yeah, it's very easy to slip into it. A significant portion of black kids do not have fathers. They just don't. And um, you know, and you know, you can go back and debate on the gender politics of this, but the fact of the matter is, raising kids is an extremely difficult job. Um, and so, raising one uh, with a single parent is hard enough. When you start getting into two, three. Or, and there's really only one parent there on a day-to-day basis, you're going to have trouble. You're going to have trouble. And, you know, I'm, as you can you know, see, quite progressive on some of this stuff. But, I mean, it's just it's no getting away from the fact that it begins with parents. It really does. Um, you just, I mean, we have all of these debates about schools and, you know, what, what are schools doing and what do schools need to do more. And I just, I, I, how you, you know, schools are left to deal with situations that arise from all of the time a kid spends, you know, away from school. And so how you, you know, address that and, you know, put school in isolation of everything else that's happening in a community, in a family, you know, I, I don't know how you do that. Yeah, and yet in your book, I think there's, um, I, I think your book, The Beautiful Struggle, really explores in, in, a, very, um, in a very moving way how your family was able to do that. I mean, you had some gifts in your family, but you also had some tremendous struggles. And so it, it does also come down, to some sense, to the individual. It does. And, then, and you know, and, then, and there's the other thing, you know. I mean, for me, it's very structural. I know I had a quite a bit of support, and I don't know where I would be had I, say, been adopted. But my dad comes from a completely different situation where he didn't have a level of family support I had. Um, and so I just marvel at who he is. Um, so, you know, yeah, some of that also comes down to, you know, <laughs> put your foot on the gas and do it. You know, um, it, that definitely is a, does play a role in that. But I just, I don't, I don't want it simplified. You know, it, it's not one thing. It's about 50 things working at the same time. And the other thing that people have to remember is basically until the mid-1960s, African Americans really weren't citizens of this country in full. Um, and, you know, you're talking about a legacy of not, I mean, let's just put slavery aside. You're talking about Jim Crow. I mean, you're talking about covenant, you know, housing covenant. You're talking about housing discrimination. You're talking about redlining. That is basically, you know, a state-sponsored transfer of wealth out of the black community. 
Um, and so we've been out of that for, you know, what do you say, maybe 30, 35 years, and we expect basically a century's worth of damage to be healed in 30, 35 years. You know, at a point when no one is really interested in healing that damage and, you know, hasn't really been for some time. It's going to, you know, and I'm an optimist. I'm not saying that to be pessimistic. You know, I think African Americans have made great strides. This, this is going to take time. It doesn't happen overnight. And what about you and your work as a, as a journalist? I mean, you've written a memoir here. And does your work as a journalist also address these concerns? Yeah, I try, I try really hard, too. I just had a piece in The Atlantic on uh, Bill Cosby, you know, looking at a, a lot of this and how African Americans uh, were dealing with it. Uh, it is, um, What's your take on his position? Um, it's a tough question to answer. I wrote like 7,000 words. <laughs> Uh, so it's very. Um, I think a lot of black people agree with him. Um, I think that's the first thing that has to be said. Um, I'm instantly suspicious of you know minimalizing problems down to if you just do this, everything will be okay. Um, and that kind of goes across the board. I mean, I'm skeptical that if you simply funded schools better, everything would be okay. You know, um, I'm also skeptical that you know if black parents made their kids pull their jeans up, everything would be okay. <laughs> so um, I think there are a lot of factors at work. But I think what the most puzzling for me and the hardest, I think, to deal with it is not having two parents. Now, I know this is happening across the board in the country, and that must be said. You know, like within the context of America, this is what's If there were no black people, we would still be facing this because it's happening across the country, you know, among, among white people and in other communities. But, you know, we can ill afford it. We, we're, we're the people who can least afford for that to be the situation. And, you know, this is just my perspective. This is just me talking, you know, dealing with how I came up, um, minus a parent in the home, not having that other parent. I mean, and maybe not in the home, but not having another parent who was deeply involved in how I was being reared. Um, I would have been in trouble. I would have been in serious, serious trouble. And as you say, you, uh, you know, as you said, and as Hillary Clinton has said, uh, it, it does take a village. Yeah, because you really need more than two. I mean, you need two yeah. to be, you know, on, on, and, and, you know, on them and, you know, to be applying constant pressure. And, I, you know, I call it positive pressure in the sense of expectations and that sort of thing. See, even though I didn't do well in school, um, I was clear on what I wasn't to do. You know, I was very clear that I was not going to grow up and sell crack, that that would be a complete disgrace of my parents. So even though I, I, there was much stress over what I was, you know, not living up to, there was great clarity over what I would not be. You know, I wasn't going to go to jail. Like, that just, that just wasn't going to happen, you know, um, because there were too many people who I would have to face would be immensely disappointed. Um, and I carried that weight with me into my 20s, you know, into my early 30s, probably even to some extent up till now. And, you know, as stressful as it was, it's good weight. Um, people, kids need to feel like people expect some things out of them. And yet your elder brother did fall into some of that. He did. He did. He did. But I think the expectations pulled him back, too. Mm. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, um, you know, people, that, be, that stuff becomes part of your identity. So even when you're completely out there, you know, doing whatever you're doing, you know, if you have those, it's like, you know, your, your parents talk you to death when you're a kid, about what you should do, what you need to do, da, da, da. And then one day you leave their house, and there's this voice in the back of your head saying, you should be doing X, Y, and Z. You really shouldn't be doing this. And you're like, Dag, I thought I was out the house. 
know? And so even with him at his most extreme points in the book, there's something, you know, saying to him, wait, son, pull back, pull back. What, what, What are you doing here? Is this in line with who you're supposed to be? Is this in line with the best of who you are? Is this how you were raised, really? You know, um, and I think, you know, black kids need more of that. They need more of that voice in the back of their head. And the book is The Beautiful Struggle, A Father, Two Sons, and an Unlikely Road to Manhood. And this has just been a, a delight to talk with you, and it was a delight to read. ta Coates, you thanks so much. You got it. Thank you. All right. Take care then. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was ta Coates talking with Writer's Voice in 2008. That's it this week for Writer's Voice. Go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows, plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts. I'm your host, Francesca Rhiannon.